Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Captain Leo Walton, who after being electrocuted, had a near-death experience, which we're going to learn about today. Captain Walton, thank you for joining us, and welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. I just love what you guys are doing. There's a group of you out there that's really providing a format for people like us to be able to communicate about our experiences, and we can all learn and maybe gain some uh, intellect about what's going on in the world with these things. Without people like you stepping forward and sharing we wouldn't be able to learn. So thank you That's right. for sharing. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Mm -hmm. All right. It's a well, pleasure to be here. If you don't mind, let's just start on the day you got shocked and go from there. Okay. All right. I was uh, living aboard my boat called the Sea Spirit. Uh, it was in the middle of summertime and it was, uh, we were in a period when uh, I lived on the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia it's really humid there, and the temperatures had gotten up to where it was over 100 for several days in a row. And my air conditioning system had failed in the middle of the night three nights in a row. And I would wake up, and the bed would be soaking wet, and I'd have to change the sheets and all. So after the third night and being really tired of seeing what was going on, not resting well, I decided to go and figure out how to fix it. And the temperatures were so hot during that time that I had to leave the electricity on just to be able to stay in the vessel. So once I determined that what had happened is the owner of the boat before me had upgraded the uh, air conditioning system in that zone, but he didn't upgrade the capacity of the circuit breaker. So as the temperatures had got up and it was not cycling off, so often it was staying on and running at overload circuit breaker. So I was basically going to go and uh, jump on that real quick. Uh, about lunchtime one day, I decided to go ahead and repair it. And I was actually inside the electrical panel with it hot. And I was very careful with the screwdriver inside. And I was holding the panel out like this with my left hand. And crazy enough, I never got electrocuted in my right hand. I had a magnetic bracelet on, which was, I made a mistake leaving that bracelet on, but I'd been out of working in industry for a long time and I'd worn this bracelet so long, I never even thought about it because we, we all know AC electricity is magnetic energy being rotated. So what happened is I had that 220 volts arced out of the panel to the magnetic bracelet. It literally melted the bracelet off my wrist, which took about 2,600 degrees. But it, the only scar I had on my body from the electricity entering the side of my hand, it run up through my, my arm, up through my brain, and all the way down through my left leg. But anyway, 
it ended up melting the bracelet off, but it, it catapulted me through the boat 13 feet and knocked me unconscious. Uh, like I say, it was about noon of that day that I was doing the repair and I was uh, pretty much soaking wet from perspiration. I was down on my knees in a puddle of my own sweat. So everything about it was bad for me with electricity. But anyway, when I came to, I came to at night and it was pitch black. It was a very violent awakening that I had. Uh, it was like I inhaled the largest breath of air I ever can imagine, like if you were drowning or something and you're gasping for that breath. So I imagine at some point in time, I probably suffered uh, respiratory arrest in that whole ordeal. But I ended up, I, I came to, and I couldn't, I couldn't use my left arm. I was trying to get myself up to drag myself to bed, and my left arm wouldn't function. Uh, I tried to grab a flashlight that I had. I couldn't get anything to operate, but I managed to drag myself to bed where I basically fell into a coma uh, where I laid in bed for three weeks. Uh, luckily, I had my cell phone plugged in next to me. And eventually, one of the days, uh, my son had been trying to call me. And he actually, I woke up and answered the phone, just like I'd gone to bed the day before. And it had been a three-week period. So they, him and his mother came down to the boat. She, I'd put her through nursing school. So she worked for a hospital and they'd gone and got a heart machine and came down to my boat to check my heart because I told them, I said, man, I feel like I'm having chest pains, but that ended up. So I, that's the first time I got taken to the hospital and what they determined was my heart was okay. I was just suffering from atrophy for being laying in bed uh, in a coma for three weeks, but Everything that occurred from that after that point is when you're finding out what's when you come out of a coma. Uh, I ended up I, I couldn't read. I had speech problems. I had learning problems. I had problems walking uh, my whole left side. Uh, it was weird when I came to in the bed uh, from the coma. My left arm was actually jumping up and down. It was a really strange feeling, like a fish out of water. I guess the nerves from where all the electricity runs through there it caused that particular symptom. And uh, it just took me a, a long time to recover, but it blew out all of my short-term memory. Uh, my ex-wife now, uh, at the time, we, had, we were separated, but she's the one that took me to the emergency room after it happened. And within the next day, she says, I'm tired of repeating myself. And she says, I just don't want to hang around with a retard anymore because I really couldn't remember. I mean, I would, I was driving everyone crazy, you know, all of my friends and everyone over a period of time, you uh, people start putting words in your mouth, you know, because you're, you, you forget what you're saying in the middle of conversation stuff. So the whole, uh, it, it took a good two years to really physically recover from those damages and mentally having a brain injury like that. Mine, particularly a lot of the left side of the brain is where your memory is at. So the near death experiences that I had 
actually were latent uh, experiences. They 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 showed up uh, like two years later. I started having all these visions and events that were showing up in my mind, in my memory that I, I, I didn't have any understanding of at the time. And when I'm thinking about it, uh, over a period of time, you, you wonder coming out of a coma and with the brain healing, were those memories implanted in there at the time of the accident? And that it just took my brain so long to re regain those connections and pathways before I could actually retrieve the memories that were there that I experienced. I don't know. I don't know. So that's a mystery. I hope to work with some uh, people that's involved in that research that we can learn from my experiences and how they're different in that regard. I think I've got some attention in that, in that area. So you think that the NDE probably happened when you were in the coma and you just couldn't remember it until later. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think everything was going on as normal. It's just that the pathways in my brain had been so crippled that I just didn't have access to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that those memories were latent memories that I was having. And the reason I say that is because when my wife left me, I didn't have any emotions. It was like I was just I had lost I'd lost that connection. I'd lost that empathy and connection. And it's like she walked out the door and I'm like, OK, well, let's go on. And two years later, it was really bizarre. It's just one day as I woke up and it's like, oh, my God, I miss my wife. Uh, let me call her and, and see. And I really tried hard there for a period of time to see if we could rekindle our relationship. But by the, that time, it was two years. You know, she'd already moved on. And I was still stuck in never, never land, so to speak. Well, how did the memories come back to you during dreams or what? Uh, I had a little bit of uh, everything. Uh, some of it was dreams. I really got into uh, having a lot of really, really uh, exotic dreams, really vivid type dreams. Uh, and then I, 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 it encouraged me. I got into astral travel. I start doing a lot of research in that genre. So I started having even broader visions and things of that nature. Uh, you know, a lot of the people, I, I felt like I'd been, uh, I, I'd been shortchanged by not having these NDE experiences like so many people communicate with you about. And I'm like, man, I really, I really feel bad that I get, didn't get to share that. But maybe I did. It was just at a late period of time. I, I actually did have a meeting with Jesus, which was so much more bizarre than what everyone else has. What happened with me is I ended up in a, it was a really uh, antiseptic type area, maybe even a hospital type environment or a jail cell. Even it, everything was white. Uh, the, all of the the seating was like wooden. It was no artwork. It was no people there. Now I come. I'm in this room, and I see this man walking in, and and he's dirty. He's wearing white, like a white robe. And he's dirty, his beard is long, his hair is long, and he's 
he's disheveled and he's got his head down and he comes in and sits right across from me. And, and I said, man, this guy looks like Jesus, you know, but I beat up Jesus. And, and he, and he, he, he never ever looked at me. He sat down, he put his hands on his knees like this and buried his head on his face. And he started to mumble. And he says, I'm so tired of being this Jesus. And he sat there. I didn't say anything to him. And he finally, after a few minutes, just got up and walked away the same way he entered the room. And I don't know. I've thought about this so many hundreds and hundreds of times is what did that mean? Why, why would I have that kind of encounter with Jesus? You know, what does it mean is what was I putting my, me being tired of who I was at the time because of what had happened to me? Did, was that a part of what maybe I was seeing myself? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Weird. Well, what are some of the other experiences that you recall that happened to you? Oh, golly. I started having uh, clairvoyant type things where I would see things. I actually, this was one that really knocked me for a loop. Uh, for a while, when I was doing the sun gazing, I got into that. I would walk barefooted on the beach. And one day I was walking barefoot on the beach. And it was about the 1st of April. My birthday is the 19th of April. And it was about that time frame I was walking on the beach and my mom was in an assisted living facility. And all of a sudden I had this, this image come into my mind that my mother was going to die on my birthday. And I'm like, oh, it really sent me into a, a bit of a panic mode, which was one of the symptoms that I had from the brain injury. I had a real issue dealing with panic attacks in public and whatnot. But anyway, I race home and tell my girlfriend at the time that I've, I've had this image of my mother and that she was, she was going to die on my birthday. I said, it's the craziest thing I, I've ever had happen to me. And she says, Oh, Leo, she says, you really do have too many voices in your head. You know, you really are crazy. She says, your mother is doing good. She's stable. She's uh, happy, content. And we let it go. I never said anything to my mother about this and she didn't either. But anyway, the 19th of April, uh, about three days before my birthday, my mother went into a coma and she died in my arms on my birthday at sunrise, which is really, really was a crazy experience, particularly with the, the, the knowingness in advance and then it actually coming true. That's probably the craziest thing that I had happened to me. But I've had numerous incidents that you could act, uh, you know, categorize as uh, insane or uh, extra uh, sensory type events, whatever you want to classify it under. But anyway. Do you have any memories of you leaving your body right after you got electrocuted? No, I don't have any memories directly related to the incident. The only thing I remember that was right at that time frame is when I came to and it was pitch black. Like I said, it was daytime, so I didn't have any lights on. 
and out in uh, on the water in a boat, it gets really dark out there, you know, on the Chesapeake Bay area. So I came to and all I could see was something black and shiny right next to my face. And I just was laying there because I felt so tired. It's like I wanted to get up, but I just couldn't motivate myself to get up. And I kept saying, what is this black, shiny object next to me? And I finally focused on it enough. And I had two cats at the time, and it was their water bowl. I said, what in the world am I doing laying here next to the water bowl? And I went back unconscious again. And then I got up later. I don't know how many hours it was after that and dragged myself to bed. Now, your case has been studied by Dr. Grayson, right? Well, he's he's in the uh, beginning stages of it. I've just uh, recently done a survey with them. Uh, and I sent them, as a matter of fact, a copy of the book that I wrote about my experiences uh, called the rare one. It's in edit, and I want to send it to them. And both of them are reviewing it now. They said it because of the the survey that I did with them. They said all of the answers that I answered, and all of these questions were based at the time of the near death experience. She said you didn't even, you didn't answer any of the questions that's typical of that. And I said, well, I wanted to answer it from two perspectives i would like to fill out the survey again and fill it out now from the nde time frame to two years later when i started having all of these experiences and memories of what had happened to me two years before so that's where they're at now is looking at this they say it's real interesting that i've had all of these things happen after coming out of a coma. Can you tell us some more examples of things that's happened to you? Uh, well, I got into yoga. Uh, I was looking for it for two years. I couldn't turn my head to the left. So I was having, you know, lots of pain, learning to walk and all of that stuff. So I said, well, I'll get into yoga for the physical therapy benefits of this. And uh, I started taking yoga and was having really good success on it. And my yoga instructor said, Leo, said, you'd be a real good candidate to go to the yoga school and train for a year and teach people yoga. And I said, well, that's what I'll do. So she got me really fired up for that. And when I found out I could get in, what happened once I checked is they were full up and couldn't get into classes anymore. So. I got. I get a call one day from the lady that's in charge of the school and says, Leo, we're going to do something we haven't done before. She said, we're going to let you come in, even though you're a week too late to get into class. If you make up the class, we'll let you in. And I was so excited. I was so excited that I wouldn't have to wait any time and I could get into the class. I was coming down the street in my automobile. And this is going to sound really bizarre. Still freaks me out at times when I think about it. But I was so excited. I said, man, I'm so excited. I, I feel like dancing. And there was a, a young lady on a bicycle in front of me in the car. I was in traffic. It was a school zone going slow. And this lady in front of me literally pulled her bicycle in the middle of the road, got off the bicycle and put the kickstand down in the middle of the street. 
and start dancing in the middle of the street. And I'm like, whoa, this is this is this is really a freaky experience here. Why is that girl dancing in the middle of the street? Did I have that? Have I got that kind of energy in me that I could manifest something that I had that kind of influence on that person? And I've had these kind of events similar to that, maybe not that quite frequently, uh, but and, and that kind of freaky is what I meant to say. But uh, a number of events like that. Uh, a friend of mine was working, uh, we were putting water in the boats in the wintertime, which is always a dangerous thing when you're around water in freezing temperatures. So you have to be careful. And she almost fell in because she dropped the hose and she bent over to get this hose. And uh, as she, she started to literally fall head first into the water. And I was too far away from her. And I said, no, you don't. It was like trying to get to her to grab her because I saw her going head first into the water. And before I could get to her, she just stood up like like I'd already grabbed her and pulled her out of the water. Hmm. Later that day, in the evening, we were talking. She says, Leo, she said, I had a really strange thing happen to me today when we were filling up the boat. She says, I was leaning over to get that way and I lost my balance. She says, I, I was only inches away from the water. And all of a sudden she said, did you grab me? and pull me up i said no i couldn't get to you she said i heard you say no you don't and i said well it's kind of a habit that i've had when things would happen in my lifetime and i would say well no it don't and i would react to it and i had that same but she didn't fall in and she thought i had grabbed her and pulled her up but i didn't i was too far away from her but close enough for her to hear me so bizarre things like that meeting people you know having um, my mother visited me after she passed uh i had a meeting with my dad who had died like almost 50 years uh prior to that and and i had a meeting i never had any kind of communication with him and it's the only one i ever had with both of them but just bizarre events but i'm really good at predicting things and I know information that I shouldn't really know. It's mm -hmm. like if I have a question that I, I go and I look for it and I find the answers. Have you noticed any other abilities that you have now that you didn't have prior to your electrocution? Uh, it, it's a plethora of things. Uh, some of them more subtle. The clairvoyant is the real big part of it. Um, I got into the astral travel and had, uh, I did that for a number of years actually, and actually was very good at it. How do you and do I, that? Uh, it, it starts with meditation. Uh, it all began with me. I, I really got into different philosophies. Um, I found modern medicine in helping me with my recoveries. Uh, I, I was on I mean, really, in a short period of time, I was on like half a dozen different medications, many of them uh, psychotic medications because the damage to my brain, it it crippled my pineal gland and my pituitary gland, which makes your melatonin and your serotonin. So the first thing they want to do is start putting those chemicals in you 
so that you can function in the regular world. Cause I was having some real, I had real anger issues and uh, learning disabilities and all of the physical ailments. Plus I was a successful businessman uh, of 15 years. And all of a sudden I can't, I can't read my own reports. I can't physically do the work anymore. So I lost the ability to take care of my own self. What kind of things have you seen during your astral travels? Well, it's numerous things. I did it quite a bit. And from one thing of being able to actually uh, set your course where you want to go and do that, I actually had very good results with that. Uh, My girlfriend was taking a trip to an island uh, to take her kids there uh, to for a visit. And I said, well, I'll go there and check it out before you go and let you know. And I, 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 I went out and it was really bizarre. The whole astral travel thing, you get the feelings in your face that you're really traveling at a fast rate of speed. You get like insects feeling on your skin and whatnot. But I went there and went, showed up right at this house that she was going to how i ended up there i can't explain that all i know is in front of this house it was yellow it was a spanish design mediterranean built it had arched windows in it inside the house it had arched all of these decorative things it had a terracotta roof on it and all that so i i told her the next day i said hey i went there this is what you're gonna see when you got there And a week later, she actually traveled there. And the first phone call I get from her from there, she says, you're not going to believe this. You just, you just, you just not going to believe this. She said, you described the house exactly, exactly. The color, the archways, all of it was exactly as I had detailed to her before, before she went there. But anyway, another type of event that I had on numerous times is I would end up in this realm. I like to call them realms uh, because it's like different frequencies. It seems like each of these states that you travel to in altered states of consciousness, there's multiple levels and they're all it's all about energy and frequency. It really is everything and i would end up in this one environment and i would be literally soaring like superman through the air and i'm over top of all these people but the big thing is it's all gray it's like on a moonlit night in this particular realm every time i went there it was always i I called it different shades of gray and literally it is so many people there and it's shoulder to shoulder people standing there and I would fly over them and they would look up at me. They weren't interacting with each other. They were just as far as you could see in every direction is all these people and they're, they're gray in color. You know, it's no color. You can't see color in their clothes or anything. So as I'm flying over, these people are looking up at me. It's like they can all see me as well, but they don't talk to each other. They don't interact with each other. And as far as I would fly, it was all these people waiting. 
And I went to this particular realm a number of times. And so I started to research what other psychics and other people doing astral traveling were doing. And Edgar Casey, uh, I, I did some research in what he established. He he called that realm the Sea of Souls. Hmm. So that's where I learned about that after I was traveling there because I was so confused. What is this? You know, you come back and you come into the, the normal reality that we have and you, you've got so many questions about your own sanity on what you just witnessed. Was it real? What are the people doing in the Sea of Souls? Are they waiting to reincarnate? Uh, well, one, one event I had that because I never could get uh, in that realm long enough that I actually saw why these people were waiting. And I had one instant out of all of them where I actually ended up at the end of the, at the front of the line. And it literally was one of these people laying like uh, on the ground with like six or eight people circled him. And it, all these people were just, it looked like they were waiting for something, an opportunity or something like that. Now, in my mind, I never saw anything happen here, but I'm wondering because further research that's come from this later, not from that moment, is some people believe that when reincarnation takes place, that there's a number of people that are looking for the opportunity to use your vessel, your body in the other realm, in reality, and that they're waiting for the opportunity. So it's like competition is what I felt like is those people were looking for the opportunity to see if they could get in you first. I don't know. Sounds bizarre. You mentioned that you used to practice sun gazing. I think that's what you called it. What is that? Sun gazing. I got interested, actually. Um, I did a lecture at, uh, at ARE for the IONS group out of Virginia Beach. Uh, and one of the lectures that I did there, I, I was talking to some of the guests that came to see me. And one of them was uh, at a health uh, had a health facility in Tennessee, and they were telling me about sun gazers. And I got interested in the topic just randomly and started to research. And uh, the more I researched, the more I learned that the ancient Egyptians, the Mayans, the Indians uh, were all into sun gazing. So I really delved down that rabbit hole. And so I got interested in sun gazing, and I located a gentleman in India, and uh, he had come up with a protocol. He was a rich billionaire, and he had researched the ancient uh, sun gazing in his Jain religion, which is a sun gazing cult in India today. And he had access to all these religious ancient texts that he delved into for 25 years and he put together a program that he said was safe for you to learn how to sun gaze. So I said, okay, I actually communicated. His name was here, Ratan Manik. 
and he's deceased now. He died in February of this past year. But uh, anyhow, I got communicating with him and started using his methods and started sun gazing, which you start off at 10 seconds duration, staring at the sun at certain times, like the hour before uh, from sunrise and the hour after sunrise. There's no ultraviolet rays in the same way in the evening, uh, an hour before the sun sets, there's no UV. And that's what does damage to your eyes. So you can basically train your eyes physically to be able to take that energy in. And I started out at 10 seconds. And when I got done with his course, it took me a year to get done with the program. And I had stared at the sun for 90 hours total to where I could stare at the sun, open naked eyed for 45 minutes duration. And so I did that. And I believe a big part of that was how I healed myself. That's why I call that the Book of Miracles, that book I did on it. I also uh, lost the urge to eat during that time, which is a symptom of sun gazing. Uh, by the time I was done, I'd already dropped down from three meals a day to two. And today, even, I only eat one meal a day. That's all I ever eat. Uh, my wife's the same way. We're both pescatarians, and we both only eat one meal a day. So uh, oh, after another year, I actually went 90 days with no food at all to prove that I could live just off the sun. I drank coffee black coffee and uh, and water. I had a water that I created, but it's been a very uh, interesting experience. And I still sun gaze. I don't sun gaze for the same duration because once you attune yourself to the sun, you're, you're, you attune yourself to all the other energy fields of the planet because without the sun, we wouldn't have any of those energy fields. It's interesting. So you said that Within the first hour after the sun rises and maybe the last hour before it sets, there are no UV rays? Right. The damaging rays aren't don't exist, so it doesn't harm your eyes. As a matter of fact, what happened with me, uh, I did another lecture, and uh, by the time I started sun gazing, I did a lecture, and I actually did a sun uh, gazing workshop. And in the audience was an optometrist. Mm -hmm. I'd already been to two optometrists. One was in my medical network, and another one was in another network that did uh, cataract lens replacement surgery. And both of these doctors had recommended that I get both of my eyes. Uh, uh, the cataracts were so bad that I needed the lenses removed and new ones put on. And so I met this other, this third optometrist came to one of my lectures and he said, Leah, I'd like to really examine you. So he was in another city. So I went and uh, went through all of his experiments and everything. And he said, Leo, he said, he even drew my cataracts where he took a pen and drew them, you know, a diagram. You got this much cataract on this eye. You got this much. And I had just started the cataract experiment. And uh, he said, you, yeah. He said, so I recommend you to get lens replacement surgery also. So I said, well, you know, Bob, uh, we became good friends. We still communicate regularly. I said, I really want to try this sun gazing experiment because Hera claims that it will remove the 
the cataracts from your eyes. So anyway, I did another year or so and my vision got worse of sun gazing. And so I thought my, my sun gazing experience had failed and that I still had cataracts and my eyes were just getting worse. So I contacted the first doctor who was in my network. He wrote me a prescription to go to the surgeon to get my cataracts removed uh, as far as the lenses changed. So I go to another city, meet with another doctor. I, I don't need to see, you know, my doctor could write me a prescription for glasses. So I go to this doctor. Uh, he runs me through all the tests at the end of the, the, uh, the visit. He writes me a prescription, hands it to me for a new pair of glasses. I said, Doc, I don't understand. I said, I just drove here. I've had three doctors tell me I've got cataracts so bad I need lens replacement surgery. And you write me a prescription for glasses. He says, Leo, he says, let me tell you. He says, on a scale of one to four, he says, your left eye, he says, one being the, the least and four being the worst. He said, your left eye, you're a zero. He says, your right eye, he said, you're a good solid one. He said, you are not a candidate for lens replacement. So, and he's saying what was the doctor's faults. It was three doctors that misdiagnosed me. So at that time, I was so overwhelmed by uh, getting a new prescription for glasses and him telling me I don't have any it, it was a drive home before I realized, oh, man, my my sun gazing experiment was a huge success. The reason my eyes, the vision changed because the cataracts weren't there anymore. So I need it. It changed the whole way the light enters your eyes. So anyway, so I go get the new prescription on glasses. And this has been three years ago, maybe four years ago. OK, so I finally. Before my wife and I went to Egypt last year, we said, okay, my eyes, my glasses are getting bad. I need new glasses. And she says, me too. I need glasses. So we went to the doctor here in London, see a whole new group of doctors on glasses, go through the all tests. I go into the room with the optometrist after he's reading all the tests and he pulls his glasses off like this and lays them down and says, Leo, he says, I've been doing this 25 years. He says, I've never seen what is happening with you. He says, you tell me it's been three or four years since you've got these glasses. He says, which is a long time. You know, most people go get their glasses changed every year or two. You, you wear glasses. You know how that is. And, and he says, I literally have to make your glasses weaker. He says, your eyes have improved. Since you got that prescription, he says, in 25 years, I've never had a patient come to me and I had to make your glasses weaker. Hmm. So it goes to show you that my sun gazing was a huge success for the cataract. And he said, you don't have any cataracts. So uh, I'm excited about that. And that's why my first book, I've got about 13 manuscripts. And I want the first one to be that one. Now, your first book is called Addicted to the Sun, and it's all about sun gazing. It doesn't have to. Yes. It doesn't have anything to do with your NDE. Well, I go into, uh, I believe what happened to me and my, uh, 
my NDE, what caused an event that I had, I believe it saved my life, actually. I believe I had what they call a sudden kundalini awakening. Mm -hmm. And I learned about this from my yogic training. So I delved into that. I really found great information in that whole Vedic system, the ancient Indians, the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata. Uh, uh, There's such a scientific country ancient science and so i delved into what this was about and learned that the the um, human has got an energy that lies dormant at the bottom of their spine and yoga was actually created by these ancient sages watching people having these sun, sudden kundalini experiences where they literally their bodies were doing all these contortions and weird would get in these weird positions, which is exactly what happened to me. I was having all these uh, like seizures. I mean, I'd find myself on the floor and I'd be like trying to tie myself into knots and stuff. You know, I thought I was not only losing my mind, but uh, my body was going berserk on me. So I was dealing with all that and looking for anywhere to find answers for it. And this was the only thing I could find that could really explain it. Now, this was happening during your two years of recovery after? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'd literally sometimes just freeze. I would end up in the floor and couldn't move. It was like my whole body would just, every muscle in my body would just be rigid. And I thought I was having, I already was having really bad, uh, uh, I called them brain spikes, because every once in a while I just feel like somebody would stab me in the side of the head, and it would just cause me to, and they call that temporal lobe epilepsy. So I was thinking these other events were all tied into that same thing that was going on with me. And eventually they just slowed down. Uh, it was uh, the, the frequency of these events were, uh, were further and further and further apart to where over a period of, well, my, my NDE happened in 2007. So I'm dealing with all of these events as a more mature and experienced in the after effects and how, you know, I, I, my book, the whole book is about uh, the battle between new Leo and old Leo. I changed that much. What do you think inspires you about your NDE? Oh, God, I'm so into it. The research, that's the main goal. Uh is there's so many people like my experiences weren't positive. You know, I had a lot of injuries from it and I had a lot of economic, economic events. I lost my marriage, lost my business, the ability to take care of myself. You know, I almost ended up homeless, almost committed suicide. After about 18 months, I'd become so depressed uh, just watching my life, just going down the drain. I, it was every day. This is just every day. It was just more and more mayhem. So it wasn't uh, that I had these euphoric events is all I could remember. It was, I was so uh, burdened with everything going on in my life at the time, the circumstances. Uh, and it was so fast. You know, you don't get a chance to react to that, particularly when you can't even walk and talk to people. Uh, I couldn't balance my checkbook. I would bounce, I bounce checks at the bank. 
you know, they call me in, say, hey, yeah, we're going we to fix you if you do this again, you know. So it was a lot of trauma going on and worrying about being homeless at the time. Uh, because of the way I acted and interacted with people, I had real communication problems. I had anger issues. And I was intense. I was a real intense guy at the time. So I lost uh, being able to communicate with people. I uh, didn't, my support, even with my family, you know, my family even distanced themselves from me. So I was literally being on a boat in an environment that it's easy for you to disappear. And that's what I did about three years. I became a hermit. How does your family interact with you now? Oh, they're wonderful. Uh, it's, they really, uh, it, it was a real change for them because I was so different. It's like, I looked the same, but man, I did not act the same. And I, I went through periods of time dealing with it because yeah, I could see it in people. So if people that were my friends, I could see it in their faces, the way they, you know, they, I, I called it the lean. You know, they used to do the lean. I'd be talking to them, next thing they're doing this, you know, <laughs> and taking a step back from you, you know, so. I lost all my friends and family and it was, it was bad events. And, and, and in my book, my whole book is about telling people, uh, I learned, uh, by talking to, uh, to nurses and stuff like that. There's a lot of soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and all and they, they have these, these simple bombs that they use to, they, they don't necessarily kill you, but they hurt you real bad. If you step on one, and a lot of these guys have traumatic brain injuries and in coming back and they end up on medication for the rest of their life. And a lot of times their family does too. They end up on all these psychotic medications, just trying to deal with this guy that showed up. So I said, man, I really want to get involved in telling people like my life now, my life now, if I could snap my fingers and go back to that time, that day before, where I had a successful 15-year-old business, I had a marriage that was, it, I was happy in it. She was the one that wasn't happy at the time. We had some economic issues we were working through, you know, because that 2008 thing that crashed because of the business I was in, I dealt with boats. So it actually hit that business a couple of years before that, about 2006, it really would start going down like what the heck 15 years every year my business the gross receipts has gone up now this year 50 percent less so it's like whoa so we were adjusting to that and then this of course occurred which really really changed the economics to really go down the tube but i really feel compelled to help these families get through these times and and to to develop hope you you what i had to do with me because i almost committed suicide i had a really elaborate suicide and it got to be complicated you know i, I wanted to to just disappear and and my family not have anybody to, to find you know i want to disappear and just just end my life but all the things working on trying to make sure this was going to go to this person and this, you know, the cats, somebody had to take care of my cats. All that got to be a burden for me. But anyway, I finally decided that I wouldn't commit suicide because my mother was alive. 
I said, if I committed suicide, I might as well drive up to where she lived and kill her first because my suicide would have killed her. So she's probably the only reason I didn't commit suicide. Do you but I'm glad I didn't. If I snap my fingers now and could go back to when everything was really good, I tell you, no thanks. I pass. Do you fear death at all? I have absolutely no fear at all, period. Not just death. I don't have any fear. Uh, it's really a bizarre feeling. I've always been kind of a action guy, you know, doing live. I was a professional firefighter, you know, running a perfectly good house on fire. I, I was, so I already was pretty fearless. But no, I have absolutely no fear of death or anything else. Uh, I'm just kind of absent in that whole category. But I want to take that, what I've learned in that you, the battle with me was finally accepting, you know, being an athlete and you get injured, you, you work twice as hard to recover, make that area that got injured stronger. And you come back and you're better than what you were. And I had that mentality going in as an athlete. And I could not, I could not, no matter what I did, be who I was before. So I finally said, goodbye, Leo. Goodbye, old Leo. New Leo's here. And it changed my whole perspective. I said, you know, I'm really lucky because I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what I'm capable of. I don't know where I'm headed, but I've got the opportunity right now to customize who I want to be. And that's what I did. I got into yoga, became a yogi, uh, then trained for a year and became a Reiki master. And I delved into all these healing modalities. I was really interested in that and still am. And my wife now is British. She's an ex-massage therapist. She's into very intuitive. She's an author herself, writer, loves. We met on an ancient Egyptian site. That's how we met. So my life is good, and I want to other people to say, you've got to let that go. What doesn't serve you anymore, you got to cut loose. you got to look for ways to make your life better. And happiness will return. And that's the big motto I have with that whole book and my research and what I want to do in the future. I want to get actively involved with more research. I want to take sun gazing and I want to hook up with a group of doctors that can wire me up with EEGs and let me sun gaze and measure what's going on inside the human body when that occurs. And let's map what's going on in the brain. Let's map what's going on with the heart, blood pressure, all of it. Nobody's ever done that before. Plus, I'm into ancient waveguide systems. The Egyptians, the Asians have them. There's lots of these units you see people hold in their hands. Nobody knows what they are. I've been building them for a decade and researching them and using them with sun gaze. And I know exactly how to use them. And I wanted to take all that and get the equipment get the professionals involved to carry this research to the next level and what i learned with the egyptians is the egyptian pharaohs when they were chosen they would take them and seal them into a sarcophagus and suffocate them for eight minutes 
to give them an NDE because it said, one, is they had to be strong enough to survive it. And two, it would be a group of sages when they would take them, they would seal the sarcophagus with wax. They pried open, revived the person inside, the potential Pharaoh candidate, and they would interrogate him and ask him questions. What did you experience? And if he answered those questions properly, he became an ex-Pharaoh. But Ramses II, from all of my research in Egypt to date, was the most powerful of the Egyptian dynasty pharaohs. He lived to be 90 years old, served as pharaoh for 67 years. And in Egypt, what they would do is they have a festival. It's called the Sebhed Festival. And this festival had been going on for 3,000 years in Egypt. And what they would do when they'd have this festival, and it would rotate around. It was like two or three years in between. It wasn't like one every year. But what they would do at each one of these Hepsed festivals is the acting Pharaoh at the time would actually undergo an NDE experience again. Ramses II experienced 14 Hepsed festivals, which meant he had 14 near-death experiences, plus one to be chosen as Pharaoh. So 15 near-death experiences were done voluntarily and on purpose to these pharaohs because it said it made them powerful gods on earth because of what happened to them from the NDE experiences. And I'm sure you've seen that yourself. I mean, with you say you've had 400 interviews. Wow, you've talked to some people that's got some good gifts, I know. I think sometimes after NDEs, people have these new abilities that they didn't have before. That's exactly right. And that's what I've experienced. One of them was writing poetry. Now, I, I didn't even like to read poetry. I was kind of like, poetry. Yeah, poetry. But what happened with me is all of a sudden I started writing poetry. And I probably got about 150, 200 poems. And the book that I wrote, the rare one, I actually took my book of poems because once I wrote I journaled for a couple of years and really journaled a lot of the things that happened to me, which I detail in the book, which I thought would be really good for other people to read what was going on in my life to see if they were experiencing anything like that. And I survived it. You know, I'm here. I'm alive and I'm doing good. And I want to be that kind of role model for people to have this kind of catastrophic tragedy in my life and actually come back from it and be successful after it and be better smarter healthier and i'm looking to live to be 130 years old longevity research captain leo you we mentioned your book earlier addicted to the sun where do yeah. people find it it's on amazon uh it's in all of the ebooks uh it's at a number of stores uh we haven't gotten any book came out in 2020 and what I've learned with writing books is there's a uh, one of it's marketing it and getting it, uh, you know, you you write the book, you get it published and all of this. And then the marketing begins. Yeah. And so we haven't really delved into the marketing. Uh, we were timing it. My wife and I are both authors. We were hoping to have five books published by this year, uh, which we failed at that. We're running behind, 
I've got one published and two books in edit, and she has a book in edit. And so we're looking at 2024, maybe doing the London Book Fair and really begin our marketing for books then. But we're trying to get, I, I like the lecture. I really enjoyed the lectures I had, and I would like to get involved in that lecture circuit and talking to great people like yourself. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you. Are you open to that? Sure. Uh, I, I like, because I travel so much, uh, the best way to get me is through my email, which if you want to include that as part of this podcast, sure. you're welcome to. Sure. What is it? It's uh, C A P T. L-E-O dot W-A-L-T-O-N at gmail.com. Captain Leo Walton, gmail.com. And I, I will respond back. You got anything else you're working on that you want us to know about? Uh, the bioenergy stuff. Uh, I've got a book that's uh, about 80% completed right now. I call it The Cosmic Circuit of Man. Uh, that's uh, uh, dealing with how the human being actually connects to the sun and the earth and all of the other cosmic uh, alignments that we have and how man, uh, I, I go into elongated skulls and that, I go into uh, giants that used to be on the earth. I believe that height of man is determined by how tall our magnetic field is. Uh, you know how they've been talking about the the uh, North Pole, the magnetic North Pole moves 34 miles every year and it's moving to the to the east and uh, why that's occurring. It's a cyclic event, I believe, a uh, planetary cyclic event. But with that, it changes the magnetic field. So the magnetic field is because it's moving is an indication it's moving. So like right now, the magnetic field is about 30 inches is the main magnetic field for a human. And what I did, I did all the math based on dinosaurs. Uh, I did, uh, I came up with a logarithm on the hip, their hip bones, how tall they were, how tall giants have been found on the earth. And I found in my calculations, this logarithm said right now the average man's about five foot ten. Back during the dinosaur periods, the average man was probably eleven foot eleven mm. uh, because he was bigger too. And we know that they find these giants all over the earth. So we're into that kind of research and writing about it. Um, the biggest uh, amount of information I have is probably my pyramid research i got really involved in the giza pyramids you talk about having uh interesting things happen what happened with me is i started having visions of things so most of my research i've done i've got thousands of pages and hundreds of drawings uh i would have a vision in my mind and i draw it and then i would come up with the information that would go with it so uh, my ancient Egypt research, I had done enough of it for over a decade, and I put it in storage until I had the opportunity to go to Egypt to see if my theories were true. And this is probably going to be three or four books just from my Egyptian research. And Teotihuacan in Mexico, we've done all those pyramids over there, too. And trying to make connections on systems. You know, uh, everybody always wants to know, how did they build the Great Pyramid? Me, I don't care. 
I don't care how they built it. I want to know why the hell would they build? Why do you go in the middle of the desert and build something like that? I mean, you got to want to return on that. Right. Right. So that's been my theories. And I have some really good theories on that. And we spent nine weeks in Egypt. I actually was in the King's chamber in the great pyramid on my birthday this past year. And, uh, it was a good way to celebrate my birthday. And so I just made a trip back to America. I spent 10 weeks in America. And one of the big things on going there was getting all my research and shipping it to London. So all my research on my Egyptian stuff following my visit there to confirm or to deny my theories. And most of my, most of my theories, I actually aren't going to change, but they actually, the, the scope, it broadened. It, it deals with much more than just the Giza plateau. Now I'm finding it's all, all the old kingdom stuff is all interrelated as far as the system. That'll be coming out next year. I hope. Yeah. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? We're dealing in a crazy time period in the world right now. Everybody's really being stretched to the maximum economically, emotionally, health-wise. Uh, lots of people are disappearing from the planet. That uh, is hang in there. Uh, go inside and 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 develop peace within yourself. You know, practice behavior that is beneficial to you, that's going to see you to the end of this. You know, don't let anxiety and, and despair, uh, you know, suicide rates off the chart right now. Uh, don't, don't fall into that mindset. It can get better, and it will if you adapt behaviors to pursue that. And that's the biggest problem I had is I used to wake up in the morning after uh, this event. I call it my grand illumination now is what I call it. I don't call it my electrocution or injury. I call it my grand illumination because now looking back on it and where I'm at and how I feel about life and every everything, every aspect of my life, it's just so much better, so much better. And if you if I can explain that to people in a way to say, if, if, if I had pictures of myself walking with my carrying my arm and, you know, and not being able to talk and show those to people and say, look at me now, you know, I'm almost 70 years old. I'm healthy. I'm fit, happy, doing what I love, talking to great people like yourself. I, I'm a lucky guy. And you can be that lucky guy or lucky lady yourself. Captain Leo, thank you for that message, and thank you again for being my guest. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. It was a pleasure. I hope that we speak again in the future. Well, reach back out to me once you get your new book out. You got it, pal. All thank right. you very much. Thank you. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.